Amen. We want to draw your attention in our bulletins to our missionary of the week, Matt and Gretchen Clay. They are serving in North Africa, and they have a passion there to reach uh, those with the gospel, but especially through North, American, through North African pastors uh, and their lay ministers discussing some ways for them to help them uh, to reach out to their neighbors with the gospel. So you can read more about their story there in the bulletin, but we wanted to share one more video with you uh, this morning on our uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering and the sacrifice that many of our missionaries make in going uh, to many countries to share the gospel, especially in those places uh, that are high security risks. So prayerfully watch this video this morning. When someone takes an AK-47 and put it to your chest and cock it, you know that you're only one pull of a trigger away. Some people would say that my parents weren't very responsible parents for taking me to Kuwait where the Persian Gulf War broke out. Some people would say that's irresponsible to take your kids with you into your calling where there's so much suffering. But rather than it taking me further from God, it actually helped take me closer to God. Because one of the things I learned in an early age, God actually calls the people of God to move towards the hardest places of this earth. Nobody knew anything about Kuwait. It was just this little dot on this map in the Middle East. But three months later on August 2nd, 1990, Saddam Hussein and Iraqi troops invaded Kuwait and we were living right downtown. There were four sets of Iraqi troops that broke into our apartment. And as a 10 year old, I just began like crying. And I didn't actually know if I was gonna live. I didn't know if we were actually gonna even make it through that day. We knew we had to leave quickly. Uh, I was held downstairs by gunpoint, but when I came back up the steps and we all jumped in a car and drove out of downtown, and there were Iraqi soldiers all around us, and we drove right through the middle of them as if God blinded them. And then we all gather into the American embassy. Within a few days, the embassy got locked down. They eventually turn off the water, the fresh water, and the and electricity to get us out. Heat was 120 degrees, no air conditioning. But the hardest part, I think, came six weeks later when uh, Laurie and uh, Peter and Aaron left the embassy, and I turned them over to Iraqi soldiers to take to, to the airport. Um, those are our hard moments, even this many, 30 years later. Because I want to live out God's call. And part of that living out that call is being connected to God's spirit. And what is God asking you to do? And is he big enough to take care of you? Or do you think you have to do it all yourself? That is the struggle of following God and then turn to God, God, if my life is taken, are you gonna take care of the boys? Are you gonna take care of the wife? Can I trust you? What was going on in the background of the story that I didn't know was thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people were praying for me personally. My mom, my brother and I now were back in Nashville living and it was coming up for the Lottie Moon Christmas offering that the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention puts together a week of prayer leading into this big offering every December. And there were literally millions 
of Christians all throughout the country that were praying specifically for my dad to be released. And it really wasn't real to me until I got on the plane in Baghdad that I was actually going to leave and survive and be home. It's not about me. It's about the millions of people praying and God doing a miraculous uh, event. I believe that God is looking for people who are willing to move towards the hard places and stay even when it's hard and trust that the Holy Spirit still speaks and confirms his promises in our lives. God is looking for those who would go to those hard places like Matt and Gretchen Clay, who are missionaries of the week, and others uh, to go to those places to share the gospel. And we ourselves may not necessarily be able to go. The Lord may be calling some individuals to go from our church, and, and that would be great. But one of the ways we can uh, support those who have gone is through our Lottie Moon Christmas offering and through praying for them, as you heard there in the video. So let's go to the Lord in prayer for our missionaries this morning. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you that at this time of year, as we're thinking about giving gifts, Lord, I pray that we would think about what are we giving to you? Father, I pray that we would even answer that question ourselves. Can we trust you? And we know that we can because we've seen it over and over and over again. Lord, we just want to uplift Matt and Gretchen Clay who are serving you in North Africa and many other countless thousands of missionaries who are serving around this world that are supported through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering and through our offerings each and every Sunday. And Father, we just pray that as we give to this offering, as you lay upon our hearts what we would give, help us to be reminded of that, Lord. We're not just giving uh, to individuals. We're not giving to an institution. We're giving to you uh, to see the gospel go forth around this world. Lord, we pray for missionaries who are in harm's way uh, because of the places that they are, the secure places that they are, that we don't even know their names and aren't able to report their names uh, because of that. But Father, we just pray that you would place a hedge of protection about them. You would keep them safe. You would provide for their every need and lay upon our hearts, Lord, what we might give to help to provide for those needs. So bless this offering, Lord, that we're taking this month. And we just ask God that you would bless us, that we might be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me just encourage you, if you're at home there, you can go to our church website at highlandbaptistchurch.com. Go to the far right-hand side, click the Give Online tab. You can do that online, uh, as well as we have our uh, international missions offering, the Lottie Moon Christmas offering uh, that you can do online. If you need these in person, uh, these should be in your pews uh, there around. If you don't find one there, you'll find them around at the windowsills and the doors, uh, as well as the Lottie Moon Christmas offering ones uh, you'll find there. And there are a few of the prayer guides left, so I'd encourage you to pick up one of those and be praying for uh, all of those missionaries. Again, just want to remind you, uh, we don't have a regular service tonight, but we will be having our drop-in uh, communion service, so that's from 5 to 7. Encourage you to come with your family anytime that you can during that time frame. Uh, it'll be a wonderful experience for you and your family to take the Lord's Supper together on Christmas Eve. Well, you've heard as you search your heart about what to give for the, the offering we all received a gift. Uh, Luke 2, 7 says she brought forth her firstborn son and laid him in a manger. So join us as we sing about that gift that was given away in a manger. Three verses.
Children's Church will be gathering during this next song over on the piano side. But join with us now as we sing Silent Night. And please stand.
Well, take your Bibles, if you will, this morning and turn to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 to verse 25. I'm taking just a little break here for, for Christmas here uh, to share with you not only the story of Jesus as we've been looking at the life of Jesus, uh, and we're coming to the end, almost to the ascension in a couple of weeks. Uh, I wanted you to hear this morning how this all began in the Christmas story and the birthday of a king. And so if you would, let's take your Bibles, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18 and verse 22 is what we're going to read. Would you stand as we read God's Word in honor of His Word? Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 22. All this took place... To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for this day. Lord, as we get ready to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, we're reminded, Lord, what this season is really all about, the birth of our Savior, the one who came to save us from our sin. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would speak to every heart who is here, every heart that is watching online. Father, I pray for your spirit to move in our lives in a powerful way. Whether we're here and we don't know Christ yet as our Lord and Savior, may we hear the gospel. And Lord, may we respond to the gift of salvation by receiving it ourselves. And Father, I pray that those of us who have already done that, Lord, I pray this message would be an encouragement to us to share this good news of the message of the gospel, especially especially in these days with every opportunity that we have. And Father, may you be glorified and honored in our lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen and amen. You can be seated. You know, ironically, the, t- the time of year uh, called Christmas is a time of both celebration and separation because at no other time of the year are Christians more separated from the world than at Christmas time. The world celebrates a season, but as Christians, we celebrate a Savior. And so whether this world likes it or not, and increasingly the world doesn't like it as much, Christmas is the celebration of the birthday of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to preface that to say that we understand that what we're talking about there is His physical birth, that Jesus existed before the physical birth, as John chapter 1 and verse 1 uh, tells us. Uh, And so we are celebrating the the physical earthly birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there are those who, who don't know whose birthday this is. Uh, There are those who are so devious in their hearts that they want to forget whose birthday it is. And then there are those who they're going through so much in their lives, they are so depressed that uh, at this time of year that they don't even care whose birthday it is because of the struggles that they're dealing with in their own heart. And I encourage you to pray for those people, especially those who have lost loved ones in death over this last year, who this is their first Christmas without that loved one uh, by their side. I want to encourage you to uplift them uh, in your prayers. But for the most part at Christmas, the world has been throwing a big party, but they've forgotten to invite the guest of honor. Uh, They've thrown office Christmas parties, but didn't invite Jesus because he would ruin their party. I mean, how would you feel if somebody threw you a birthday party, and, and at the party, everybody got a gift except for you? 
How would you feel if somebody threw a, a party for you, but you weren't even mentioned? In fact, you weren't even invited. Think about what goes on in our world, and especially here in America where Christmas has become so commercialized. We have managed to make Christmas, as the most recent accounts that I could find, a $929.5 billion business. Half of the toys sold in America are sold at Christmas time to the tune of about $19 billion. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving gifts. There's nothing wrong with celebrating the season. But there's something tragically wrong when we forget the reason for the season. You know, Christmas isn't about buying gifts. Uh, it, it isn't about uh, the, the buying toys. It's about the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's about uh, paying tribute to Christ. And so I want to share with you uh, why that, that birthday 2,000 years ago was the birthday of not just a king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and the reason why Jesus lived such a unique life and died such a unique death is because of he, he experienced a unique birth. There are three things I want you to see this morning about this passage that we're going to be looking at here through these verses in Matthew chapter 1. First of all, it was a birth that was controlled by a sovereign God. In fact, that's what you read there in verse 22 a moment ago, that it said all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's referring back to uh, the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. So if you go back to verse 1, verse 1 says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So it begins there and gives us the family tree uh, of Jesus by Matthew through Joseph. Now, if any part of the Bible uh, seem, should seem unnecessary or, or even uninteresting, it would be a section like this in Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 1 down through verse 17. Uh, it, it reads kind of like you will, like a, a Hebrew telephone book. Uh, with, with so many begats or, or the father of. And, and by the time you finish reading, you've almost forgotten who was the father of. Uh, you know, yet some of the most precious jewels of the biblical truth here are embedded in these family names. One of the greatest truths that you can discover in this genealogy here, uh, in these verses, is the divine sovereign hand of a providential God who is overseeing the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember that the Messiah was restricted to a certain lineage. First of all, we're told in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 that he was to be born of a woman apart from a man. Uh, Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That was talking about the Messiah who was to come, Jesus Christ. Now, normally it's the man who the seed comes from, but here we're told he's to be born of the seed of a woman. And that's exactly what we're told in Matthew uh, chapter 1 and verse 16. So when you begin reading in verse 2, we read where everybody was begotten of somebody else. Let's just read a few of these. We won't go through all of these verses. But it says in verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. 
Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah. And then the list continues to go on. And so through all of those verses, you get one person after another person who's begotten or, or who is fathered by another person. Now, when you come down to verse 16, verse 16 says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You notice something different there in verse 16 than all those other verses that come before it. It doesn't say that Jesus was begotten. It doesn't say that Joseph was the father of Jesus. It doesn't say he was begotten of, of Joseph. It says, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So Joseph didn't begat Jesus. He wasn't the father, the earthly father of Jesus. Jesus was born of Mary. Back up in verse 2 there, uh, we were told that Abraham uh, begot Isaac. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, uh, but God had eliminated one half of that lineage because he said that the Messiah had to come through Isaac. Uh, you read that in Genesis 21 and verse 12 that says, But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy or because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Uh, we then read in verse 2 that Isaac uh, was the father of Jacob. Now Jacob, you remember in the biblical story in the Old Testament, he had two sons, Jacob and Esau. But God said that the Messiah would come through the line of Jacob rather than Esau. So he splits it in half there again. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now, talking about the Messiah. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, meaning that of the reign of a king, shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So God eliminates one half of the lineage of Isaac. You continue to read in verse 2 that Jacob uh, was the father of Judah and his brothers. So think about it. How many sons did Jacob have? He had 12, one representing each one of the tribes of Israel. And yet God said that the Messiah has to come through Judah. Uh, Genesis 49 verse 10 says, The scepter or the lineage of the king uh, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and him shall be the, to him shall be the obedience of the people. So now God eliminates 11 twelfths of the line of Jacob and only chooses one out of those 12. Then in verse 5 we're told, Obed, the father of Jesse. So why is Jesse included? Because Isaiah in the Old Testament had prophesied that the Messiah would come from the line of Jesse. You read Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and it says there, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Uh, he was talking about the Messiah in those uh, Messianic prophecies there. You read in verse 6 that Jesse is the father of David the king. Why is that important in this lineage? It's important 
because Jeremiah the prophet had prophesied that the Messiah would come from the house of David. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 5 that says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Now, there was no king that ever happened to be totally righteous, but he says there's coming one who will be, one who will execute justice and righteousness. We know that to be the Messiah, King Jesus. We know from 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 10 through verse 11, Jesse had at least eight sons, and so we find out that God now eliminates seven-eighths of the family of Jesse to ensure that Jesus would come through the line of David. So if you think that's wonderful and how God is orchestrating things all throughout history leading to bring about His perfect will, it gets even better. Because you get to verse 11, and it tells us in verse 11, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation, uh, to Babylon. Uh, it goes on in verse 12 to say, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltil, and Sheltil was the father of Zerubbabel. So as you read about uh, Jeconiah here, and you go back and you read about the history of Jeconiah, there's a problem here. Because Jeconiah is a wicked king. How could God use a wicked king to bring about the Messiah. He was so wicked, though, that he was, uh, he was of the line of, that even though he was of the line of David, the Messiah would never come through him. Jeremiah said about him in Jeremiah 22, 30, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. So the Messiah, God's anointed, couldn't come through Jeconiah. So how do we solve this problem of what the Scripture tells us here in this genealogy given to us by Matthew? One thing it teaches us here is that God can use anyone, even a corrupt king, to bring about His will. But look again at verse 16 and verse 17. It says, And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is called Christ. Verse 17, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, uh, 14 generations. And so every person that's mentioned up to this point is begotten by somebody else, or rather has a father until you get to Jesus. But you don't read that Joseph, as we said, was the father of Jesus, but rather that Jesus was born of Mary. Uh, Joseph wasn't the earthly father of Jesus. If he had been, not only could Jesus not have been the Son of God, he couldn't have been the Messiah because the bloodline of Joseph goes through Jeconiah, who had been disqualified of the Messianic line. But then another problem is raised. Uh, the, the Messiah has, has to come from the line of David. So how, do, how is this problem solved? Well, Jesus does come from the line of the house of David, but not through his father, but through his mother. So when you look at Luke's gospel, you see another genealogy there. Uh, the genealogy of Jesus through his mother Mary. We read in Luke chapter 3 and verse 31 that Jesus was the son of uh, Nathan, the son of David. 
Uh, you see, Matthew gives us the regal line of Jesus ending in Joseph, showing, us, uh, as, showing Jesus as the son of David and the son of Solomon. Luke gives us the legal line of Jesus through Nathan as an elder brother of Solomon ending in Mary, the Lord's mother. So genealogically speaking, Jesus is the only man ever born perfectly qualified to take the throne of David on both sides of his family. Now, you might think that that's a strange coincidence. I believe it's divine, uh, sovereign providence that God did it. God orchestrated everything from the beginning in the book of Genesis all the way to the time here in Matthew uh, to bring about the Messiah who would come and be born in a lowly manger to live a perfect sinless life, down a cross for our sins, and be resurrected from the grave so that we could have salvation. And so we see uh, first and foremost there that his birth uh, comes, uh, is controlled by a sovereign God. But we also see that it came through the Spirit of God. Read on down, if you will, in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, there's two things that were plainly told in these verses. He wasn't born of an earthly father. He was born of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the only man who was ever born of an earthly mother without the need or the aid of an earthly father. In fact, Jesus himself testified that he wasn't uh, the father. And then you read in verse 19, it says, uh, or Joseph said this. Uh, her husband Joseph said in verse 19, uh, being a just man and unwilling to uh, put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, understand this about marriages in those days. Marriages uh, had three stages in the Jewish marriage. First of all, there was the arrangement, then there was the engagement, and then there was the marriage. Marriage in those days was basically arranged by the parents, but then came that stage called the betrothal or the engagement. Now, betrothal in that day was even more binding than an engagement would be in our day. In effect, it was a legal contract which was considered binding on both parties uh, it, it, that were in the agreement there uh, the moment that it was made. The man and the woman were even considered legally married, even though the marriage ceremony uh, wouldn't occur for over a year. We know that the marriage hadn't been consummated yet because we're told uh, that, that Mary had become pregnant before they came together. She was found to be with child, verse 18 says. Verse 19 said, here was Joseph being a just man. He couldn't take responsibility for the birth because he hadn't caused it. He wanted to put her away privately because if you remember anything about adultery in that day, remember there was a lady who was caught in adultery that they came and brought to Jesus, threw her down at his feet, and, and they had picked up stones, and they were going to stone her to death because that was the penalty for adultery. Well, Joseph didn't want that for Mary, so he was going to uh, put her away privately because adultery was a, a crime punishable by death by stoning. And so Joseph, he didn't know who the father was. He just knew who the father wasn't. And then an angel appears to Joseph and tells him who the true father is. Read on down to verse 20. 
But as he considered these things, so he's contemplating all of this in his mind. How did she become pregnant? Who was she with? I mean, she was with me all this time. Uh, we, we went places together. We did things together. But we, did, we weren't together physically or intimately there. Uh, so he's considering all these things in his mind. And then behold, verse 20 says, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus was the earthly child of a heavenly father and the heavenly child of an earthly mother. Somebody has once said that he's the only child who was older than his mother and as old as his father the moment that he was born. But understand that there are those who want to deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ even to this day. If they don't deny it, they say it's just simply not important. It doesn't matter if she, he was, she was a virgin or not or uh, that, that Jesus' birth was in this way or not. Well, it may not be important to many people, but it's extremely important to us as Christians because the virgin birth and, and our belief in it, it can be the difference between us going to heaven and to hell because there are three things that are tragically true if the virgin birth isn't true. If it's not true, if the virgin birth is not true, then Scripture is unreliable. Because over and over and over again, the virgin birth was predicted in the Old Testament. Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah, in Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. That was what Isaiah prophesied. Jeremiah prophesied in Jeremiah 31 verse 22 that a woman encircles a man. In other words, a woman encloses in her, in her womb the mighty one. It was also proclaimed in the New Testament by none other than a doctor, a medical doctor himself, whose name was Luke. Uh, he testified in Luke chapter 1 and verse 34 and 35, Mary said to the angel, how would this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then here in Matthew chapter 1, we're told specifically in verse 18, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. An angel testified to this fact in verse 20 as he was speaking to Joseph, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So understand this, the Bible never tries to prove the virgin birth any more than it tries to prove the creation of this world. It just presents the facts. You can receive it and accept it, or you can reject it. But understand this, if you reject the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you're rejecting Isaiah, you're rejecting Jeremiah, you're rejecting Matthew, you're rejecting Luke and many other passages, and then you have a real problem because if you can't believe all of the Bible, uh, how can you believe any of the Bible? And that would mean that the Savior would be undependable. If Jesus wasn't the Spirit-conceived, virgin-born child of God, then of necessity he must have been an illegitimate child of an immoral woman and a promiscuous father. And then the problem really begins. Because if Jesus Christ wasn't virgin-born, then he had to have had a human father. If he had a human father, then he inherited the nature of the father. You see where this is going? 
Since that father had a nature of sin, then he would have inherited the nature of sin. Therefore, Jesus himself would have been a lost sinner and he himself in need of a savior from sin. The fact of the matter is this, if you deny the virgin birth, the house of Christianity falls like a stack of cards. If you take away his deity from the cradle, you don't need his death on the cross. If Jesus wasn't born through a supernatural birth, he couldn't have died a saving death. And salvation would be unattainable. Salvation would be unattainable. Because if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, then he wasn't the Son of God. If he wasn't the Son of God, he wasn't perfect. If he wasn't perfect, he could not have been the sacrifice for our sins because God required a perfect sacrifice. If Jesus wasn't a perfect sacrifice, then he wasn't a sacrifice at all. If he wasn't a sacrifice at all, we're still in our sins and we're still separated from God without hope. And that's the whole message Paul tells to the church. I want you to see that both our eternal, uh, that our eternal destiny is bound up in his birth. It's controlled by that cradle. It's determined by that doctrine. But there's one other thing to be said about this birth. It was completed by the Son of God. Go back to verse 1, if you will. Because in verse 1 of this chapter, we're told that Jesus was the son of David. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we're told in Scripture he's the son of God. Now, nowhere in the Scripture will you find where Joseph is called the father of Jesus, nor will you find where Jesus is called the son of Joseph. We've already established that. He was the son of Abraham, which that refers to his earthly humanity. He was the son of David. That refers to his exalted royalty of David being the king and that he is of that lineage. He was also, though, the son of God, the Christ. That refers to his eternal deity because he was the son of God and it was the birthday of a king, as we said before, is, is referencing his physical birth. Uh, we know he existed before his physical birth, John chapter 1, verse 1. But the fact that he was the son of God and it's the birthday of a king leads us to say three other things about this wonderful birth. Notice the mystery of his birth. Go down to verse 21, if you will. He's speaking, the angel's still speaking to Joseph here, and says that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Paul was right when he said this in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. You see, the first part of that mystery, as he, de he, he describes as, as God manifested in the flesh, there was, there's no way scientifically, technologically, empirically, or rationally that you can explain the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In all honesty, as we said, the Bible doesn't give an explanation. It simply gives a revelation. Here's how it happened. Doctors and scientists may say that the virgin birth is impossible, but Luke chapter 1 and verse 37 says, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
A, a person can be saved without knowing the virgin birth. A person can be saved without understanding the virgin birth. But a, it is impossible to be saved and deny the virgin birth. Because then you're saying Jesus isn't who he said he was. Notice secondly about his birth, notice the majesty of his birth in verse 22 and 23. Why did all this take place in this particular way? Why did we read all those Old Testament prophecies? Because all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Here's one of those prophecies. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. So here we're given one of the names of Jesus, the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now notice, this name refers to his person. Uh, this baby recorded in the first chapter of the New Testament, uh, think about that, from the book of Malachi, which is the end of the Old Testament, there's about 400 years of silence from God. Nothing from any prophets, no word from God, until we come to Matthew's Gospel that begins to lay out for us the genealogy and then the birth of Jesus Christ. And so in this first chapter of the New Testament, none other than God recorded in this first chapter of the Old Testament is this same baby. If a man became like God, you would expect him to be like Jesus. That's why the great poet Lord Byron said this, if ever man was God or if ever God was man, Jesus Christ was both. There was a man who was preaching on Jesus and his virgin birth, and he was preaching the truth of his conception by the Holy Spirit. There was a skeptic who came up to him after the service and said, I don't believe that story, and I don't, I don't think you believe it either. Well, the pastor said, well, you're mistaken because I do believe it. And the man said, well, suppose a young woman about six months pregnant came walking into your office and said, I'm expecting a baby. This is my boyfriend, the only man I've ever been with. He's never laid a hand on me. I conceived this baby miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Would you believe her? Well, he thought about, he thought the pastor would surely say no, but to his surprise, the pastor said, yes, I'd believe it. And he paused. And after that dramatic pause, here's what he said. He said, I would believe it if that birth had been foretold by prophets thousands of years before that baby was conceived. I would have believed it if an angel visited that boyfriend and said, do not be afraid to take this woman as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He said, I would believe it if that baby was born, uh, when, that when he was born, wise men traveled from afar and brought gifts to worship him. And a star guided them to where the baby lay. I would believe it if her son had power over the wind and the waves, over death and disease. He said, I would believe it if her son died on a cross and was raised from the dead three days later. I would believe it if that son went out to a mountaintop and ascended visibly back into heaven while an angel stood by and said, this same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come again in like manner as you have seen him go. Yes, if his disciples through 2,000 years were numbered in the billions, I would believe it. So would I, and I do. Now, there were those in Jesus' day who, who didn't want to believe it. I mean, they looked at him and they said, wait a second, we know his family. We know Mary, we know Joseph, we know his family, we know where he comes from, we know he comes from, from Nazareth. And, and you remember what they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They didn't want to believe. But I believe that, that, that any objective, rational person who will examine the evidence would believe it as well. 
But here's one final thing to say about his birth. Notice in these verses the ministry of his birth. Verse 21 had said, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 24 says, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, we've already read the one name that was given, that of Emmanuel. The name Emmanuel tells us of the person of Jesus, but the name